This is the Sunday Messages podcast from Cedar Valley Unitarian Universalists in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and I'm your host, Kat Bean Hansen. Welcome. We're glad you're here. This season, Pastor Emma Peterson is giving a series of messages about the Unitarian Universalist values that are outlined in the recent changes to Article 2 of the UUA bylaws. This is the second message in that series. From our service on November 19th, 2023, Pastor Emma gives the message, Justice, what we think it is, what others think it is, what it actually is. Today, we continue our sermon series on on the new Article 2's values. We began with equity the idea that all people receive what they require in accordance to their individual needs. And now we consider justice. When I first began to think about this sermon, I realized that I lacked a framework for justice as a moral concept. I needed to understand how philosophers and theologians alike define justice throughout history and how it informed our modern context. The primary source I used came from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And after I read that, I thought, well, I need to start here. So if you're interested in the source that I drew from, uh, you can look up everything that I read in the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. I realize that's where we probably all needed to begin, and maybe there will be a sermon down the road about social justice in action, social justice in our modern times, particular social justice movement. But uh, today we're uh, talking about framework. So for those of you that enjoy an intellectual lecture, you're in luck. And for those who don't, uh, you might enjoy a little nap this morning. And both of those experiences can be equally beneficial to your spirit. What is justice, I asked, and I found myself quite unable to answer. Is justice reserved to those, to the one who has been wronged, or is justice solely a consequence for the perpetrator of the wrong action? Who determines what is just, and where does such power come from? Is justice simply as Russ Campbell shared one Sunday after I first asked the question, revenge? And if justice and if justice and revenge are synonymous, where do we find space for mercy? Or in more UU friendly language, where do we find space for love? And if we are called to do justice, to be bringers of justice, As Unitarian Universalists, what exactly does that mean in practice? I'll answer some of these questions for today, and others will be saved for another time. Justice is a moral and a political virtue. It is a social construct, 
its philosophical roots grounded in the earliest concepts of private property and physical autonomy. Justice is an abiding American ideal, even as Americans disagree what justice looks like in practice. Some of our earliest conceptions of justice come from the philosophers of ancient Greece. Aristotle first introduced the theories of distributive justice and corrective justice. Distributive justice involves dividing benefits and burdens fairly among members of a community, while corrective justice requires us, in some circumstances, to restore a fair balance in interpersonal relationships where it has been lost. These distinct lines of distributive and corrective justice remain in our modern conceptions. Beginning in the period of medieval Christianity, prominent philosophers pivoted hard to the authority of Hebrew and Christian scriptures in determining what justice meant. Augustus, Augustine and Aquinas, both of whom I studied in seminary, though I had a favoritism toward Augustine, I found him more accessible, reconciled the works of Plato and Aristotle, respectively, and meshing those works with an unwavering conviction regarding the inerrant truth of Christian scriptures. Both the Christian New Testament and the Hebrew Bible declare unequivocally that righteous people are called to behave justly and that unjust actions, whether those actions belong to one person or an authority such as the state, are a sin against God's law. It is here that mercy and justice become intertwined. It is here also, it is here also that we see the first distinction between the laws of the human world and the laws of God. Humankind is fallible, Augustine asserts as he unpacks his own moral shortcomings. Therefore, human society might not be naturally oriented towards justice for all. The marriage of justice and mercy is nowhere else as evident than in the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells this story in response to the question, who is my neighbor, when confronted by an expert of the law. As the story goes, a man, and this is his full descriptor, a man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he is jumped by robbers. They steal everything from him, including his clothing. They beat him severely, and they leave him for dead in a ditch. Soon after, a priest comes along the same path, and spotting the man, he crosses to the other side of the road and hurries on. Just on the heels of the priest follows a Levite, and a Levite in this time was someone sort of like a church deacon or a music director or a church administrator, and this person who also ignores the man and hurries on. Soon, a Samaritan, a member of an exiled group who had such strong theological differences with the Jews that they were outcasts from society, happened along the path. When he spots the beaten, near-dead man in the ditch, the Samaritan stops and bandages the man's wounds, 
using his own precious oil and wine to cleanse the man's broken body. He then puts the man on the back of his own donkey and takes him to an inn where he can recover from his injuries. He pays the innkeeper and makes a plan to to return a few days later to cover any remaining debt to the care of the stranger he scooped off the street and saved. At the conclusion of the story, Jesus asks the expert of the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who had mercy on him, the expert replies. Go and do likewise, Jesus responds. It is here that a primary aspect of justice is upheld. All human beings have inherent worth and dignity, and all human beings are neighbors to one another. What is interesting to me about this story, the story which we which we tell to explain actions of justice, is that the robbers are never mentioned beyond their initial defense offense. There is no part where they are chased down, beaten in the way they beat the man they robbed, strung up in the public square and punished for their crimes. In fact, we never hear about them again. The focus is on the victim, the man who has been harmed. His wounds are tended to, and his recovery takes precedence over the hunting down of those who hurt him. It is almost as if justice comes in the form of healing, not retribution. It is here that we start to come to the fork of the state and the eternal. As Augustine asserts, some human laws are unjust. In his conception, a civil law of the state that violates God's eternal law is not only not morally binding, it is indeed no law at all. If we are to be bringers of justice, we are called not only to violate unjust laws, but to do all within our power to change them. It is here also that the first whisperings of inherent worth and dignity of every human being begins to intertwine with justice and practice. Augustine declares, as do I, that all people are beloved children of God, and therefore all people are deserving of justice under God's law. It is not until the 17th century, the time of the Protestant Reformation, the arrival of a new scientific awareness and a growing progressive willingness to challenge authority that our modern conception of justice becomes more fully secularized. The human's conception of God, modernity asserts, is both deeply personal and often improperly wielded by those in authority. Best to excavate a firmer ground on which justice can root separate from the human conceptions of human-sized gods. It is here also that we encounter the pitfalls of the is-ought problem. When it comes to defining and expanding theories of abstract concepts, we often find ourselves making declarative statements about what ought to be based on what already is. 
David Hume, the 17th century philosopher, is the author of the is-ought problem, and he falls into his very own trap when it comes to determining the purpose of justice. It is Hume who declares that public utility is the sole basis of justice. Justice has no intrinsic value, Hume asserts, and need only be wielded insofar as it is useful and beneficial to a society. This is a dangerous assertion, as our hubris in determining this is as this is as dangerous an assertion as our hubris in determining the laws of the divine because it prioritizes the end goal over the means that achieve said goal. If we assume that our ends were sufficiently suitable to public utility, say, for example, the ends being that all children are entitled to a stable, prosperous home, any means necessary to achieve this good end would presumably be justifiable, regardless of how horrifying they might actually be. If we accept Hume's assertion that we ought to pursue justice by any means necessary, because it is socially agreeable to do so, we can quickly find ourselves wielding the most brutal means to achieve good ends. Thankfully, Immanuel Kant arrives in the 18th century to move justice away from utilitarianism towards moral and ethical responsibility. Kant, disturbed by Hume's assertion that good acts are only necessary if they are useful, sets out to determine what he called pure practical reason, or the discovery of a singular principle of right and wrong that can be applied to all human beings regardless of circumstance. There are indeed many means that while leading to good ends, are morally wrong, and we should avoid them. Kant introduces a framework for determining what is right and what is wrong. The first framework is that of universalizability. Universalizability. We, the collective, the collective we, are called to do only what we reasonably can. What we can reasonably do becomes a universal law. The second framework requires us to center all human beings in their own right and to refrain from treating any person as an instrument to an end. The third framework is related to the second and requires us to protect individual autonomy. So if an action can reasonably be done, if it protects the inherent worth and dignity of all persons, and if it preserves individual autonomy, it is likely to be a right action. Rawls, in the 1950s, cements this framework more completely, calling for basic liberties of all citizens to be preserved and, and upheld in order for a society to be just. 
Things Get Good for Me in the 1980s when Michael Sandel introduces the concept of communitarianism. Sandel asserts that it is through interpersonal relationships of community that we more or less form enduring attachments and commitments that help characterize our sense of justice as a common good that cannot be properly understood by individuals detached from community. Sandel nudges justice out of the sphere of the individual, firmly into the sphere of community. Human beings learn how to be human only in the company of other human beings. We learn to appropriate justice, likewise, in the company of those who have endured injustice. We learn what justice is in practice, not necessarily when we are chasing down robbers, but when we are binding the wounds of the robbed. It is here that I must conclude my lecture on justice as a philosophy for reasons of time and my own intellectual fatigue. There is so much more, of course, and likely at some point, I'll endeavor to bring justice as a value firmly into modernity. The question does not feel satisfactorily answered. What do we do as Unitarian Universalists and as bringers of justice in a world that with only a cursory glance is woefully riddled with injustice? And what is justice, especially when it is fully disentangled from theology and from the state, rooted instead in values of humanism and communalism? To close, I'd like to bring to your awareness or remind you that today is Transgender Day of Resilience. Previously, we called this day Transgender Day of Remembrance, in which we publicly mourned transgender individuals who were killed because they dared to live as their authentic selves. We would read their names, noting that the vast majority of those murdered were transgender people of color, centering the day in despair and lament. But there is so much more to transgender life than death. And even as we fight to never lose another trans sibling to unjust violence, we are called now to balance our understandable fear with necessary resilience. Transgender human beings persist despite an unjust world. We are our own bringers of justice. And we are not waiting for the state to affirm the inherent worth and dignity of transgender people, nor are we waiting for the state to protect our transgender siblings. We are declaring inherent worth and dignity, and we are closing ranks to protect the most vulnerable amongst us. We take care of us. We celebrate and we defend and we persist, vowing to live lives boldly in the face of a hostile world.
Today, we remember and we mourn those we lost to violence, and we vow to protect those who still live. This is justice, and this is mercy, and this is love put into practice. This is our shared call as Unitarian Universalists. Let it be so, because we make it so. Amen, and blessed be. This has been the Sunday Messages podcast from Cedar Valley Unitarian Universalists. The music is by Nathan Moore. If you want to learn more about the CVUU, visit our website at www.cedarvalleyuu.org. And you can also find us on Facebook or Instagram at Cedar Valley UU. We welcome visitors from anywhere to virtually attend our services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Central Time. If you'd like to learn more about joining us for a service, send us an email at cvuupodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.